we're in Lent, and so we're exploring um, together some of the some of the narratives of Jesus's um, last few days, last few hours um, before the cross. And to, this morning we are in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're in Matthew chapter twenty-six, verse thirty-six to forty-six. And I'd love you if you have a Bible with you or on your phone, get it out. It'll be on the screen as well, and I'm going to read it for us all. So from verse thirty-six. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch for me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. I want to talk to you this morning about having, confu- about having character in confusion, about having character in confusion. Um, my wife, Joe's uncle, when he was five years old on a family holiday up in Northumberland, lost one of his teeth. And so he went to his father, Joe's grandpa, and I said, I've lost my teeth. So he's like, I'm going to pop it under your pillow. And um, so he did that. And grandpa goes in later in the evening um, to what he thinks is Joe's uncle's room. But it turns out there's been a bit of moving around of rooms and he's in someone else's room. And so he goes in and he slides his hand under the pillow, expecting to meet a tooth. Um, And instead, he meets a gun. Um, And so in this moment, like he's just overwhelmed with this like confusion and uncertainty because there's so many things going on in his mind. Like, is is my five-year-old son like the owner of a gun? Um, Or more likely, I'm not in his room and this could end badly. Um, and then sort of answers start to come because some, someone rolls over in bed. It's clearly not a five-year-old in the bed. Um, and, you know, sort of in the darkness, looks straight at him and goes, who are you? And Grandpa, again, confused, uncertain, um, is like, what do I say? Um, so he thinks for a bit and then goes, I- I'm the tooth fairy. <laughs> and it's a similar state of confusion and uncertainty that we meet all of the characters in this story this morning. Jesus and his disciples, they're in this place of confusion and uncertainty and anxiety and trauma and mess. And maybe this is something that you're feeling this morning, this confusion, this uncertainty. There's some corporate confusion and uncertainty that's going on with us all at the moment with the war in Ukraine, which has, you know, opened, for many of us, me included, opened up our eyes to the reality of war across the globe. There's a financial crisis, which is impacting pretty much everybody. There's an environment that's continuing to fail. And there's just so many in so many different forms of injustice going on in the world. But there are also more precise things You know, maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're struggling with ill health. Maybe you're worried about your family. Are you in a place of confusion and uncertainty this morning? And I think this passage tells us what Jesus' plan for us 
is in those seasons of confusion and uncertainty. I think this passage tells us what Jesus wants us to do. It shows us how he wants us to do it. And then it tells us later why we should. So firstly, the what. He wants us to pay attention. I, um, the other day, um, I don't know if you've ever done this, but the other day I um, was making a pasta dish um, for dinner and too late on in the process, I had this idea. You know what will go great with this pasta dish that's nearly finished cooking? Um, that frozen garlic bread that takes 25 minutes to cook. So I you know, get out the garlic bread, pop it in the oven, um, and serve up the pasta dish, sit down. Can anyone guess what happened next? Yes, you've all, you've all worked it out. Um, just crack on. And then slowly you start to smell like charred garlic bread and you're just like, I've done it again. Um, so you're like, you run to the thing before the smoke alarm goes off and you get it out and it was like properly, you know, properly destroyed. So I, I then doubled down on my mistake. So even though we nearly finished the pasta, I'm, like, I'm, going to, I'm going to get some adequately cooked garlic bread. So I went in, put it in again, did the exact same thing again, like halfway through pudding. You know, the, the smell starts wafting over. You're just like, oh, it's happened again. And after the 9.30, Pips was like, I wouldn't want you doing one of my anesthetics. And I was like, oh, no. Um, did pay more attention when I was doing the anesthetizing promise. Um, <laughs> But I'm really bad at paying attention in moments like that. And what Jesus is calling us to in this passage, in fact, he gives it as a direct command to his disciples, is to pay attention. He says, watch and pray, watch and pray. And quite often the assumption when we read this passage, he's asking them to watch and pray for him, you know, to watch out for stuff because bad people are coming or to pray for me because I've got a bad time coming up. But actually, if we read it, Verse 38, watch with me. Verse 40, watch with me. But verse 41, he, he, he says why he wants us to do that. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And this Greek word for watch, Gregorio, is really active. It's not this passive sort of, I watch the world go by while I'm sat at a cafe by the road, or I, you know, I watch a series on Netflix. It's it's. It's active, you know, the, it, it sort of translates as like being awake in the night, being vigilant. It, it infers that there's something coming at you that you need to be expectant and aware is going to come. And so this context of confusion and uncertainty, which we can't deny the disciples are in, Jesus is saying, this is the place where you're going to struggle. This is the place where temptation is going to get you. This is the place where those things that you find hard, you're going to find them the most hard. I know that this is true for my life. I wonder if it is for you. The command of Jesus is to watch and pray, to be alert, to be awake, to be vigilant. And so where do we this morning, where do we need to watch and pray? What are the things that we need to be vigilant for? And what does it look like for you to fall asleep like the disciples fell asleep? What are the places that you go to or the things that you do? Maybe it's you know, a Netflix binge. Maybe it's eating too much food. Maybe it's not eating enough food. Maybe it's getting lost on social media. Maybe it's drinking too much alcohol. Maybe it's some of the more sinister things you can get lost in on the internet. I asked Joe um, to describe what I do when I struggle with stuff. And she said, very helpfully, she's like, Mark, you, oh, this is so embarrassing, um, but you know, it's a safe space. Mark, you microwave chicken nuggets, you eat far too many packs of crisps, you drink Diet Coke, and you just watch YouTube forever. So there we go, that's, that's me. So that's the what that we're supposed to be doing. 
We're supposed to watch and pray. And then how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to do this? So in verse 37 and verse 38, it describes the state that Jesus is in. It says he began to be sorrowful. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And just as an aside, like, isn't it that Jesus loves you this much? This is the creator of the universe in human form, who was part of the process of creating humans themselves, who is saying, I am overcome to the point of death, is announcing he's at capacity. And the, the, the language suggests that, it's, that it was this overwhelming surge. It wasn't just it's been getting harder and harder. It's like all at once I feel overwhelmed with sadness which is so fascinating because that's how so many people that I've met who've struggled with depression or grief or severe anxiety have said that that's how it feels. There's this stuff welling up inside that suddenly becomes debilitating. And that's the language that Jesus uses to describe how he feels in the garden. I, I'm fairly good in a crisis and I like, often quite enjoyed as an anaesthetist going down um, to A&E um, to help look after the really sick people when they came in as an emergency. Um, but I remember once when there was, it was when our twins um, were two years old. I remember once when there was a two-year-old with breathing difficulties who came in and we, and we worked on them for like, you know, two or three hours and, and finally a sort of team from another hospital um, came and picked them up and took them to a children's hospital. And it had been really intense and I just remember stepping out of that for a moment and, and, and I completely experienced what this passage is talking about. Just this overwhelming grief that came from nowhere, this overwhelming sadness that came from nowhere and felt completely debilitating. And I wonder if, if there's any of you that have ever felt like that. Or maybe even you've come in here this morning and that's how you feel today. Jesus gives us a model in how he reacts to show us how we can engage with these times. So the first thing he does is to gather close friends. Verse 37, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. So he's got these three guys he's particularly close to. The last time they went on a prayer trip, it was the exact opposite to what they're doing now. They went up to a mountain and Jesus was transfigured before him, which just means he, he shone as bright as light and the voice of the father came down and said, this is my, this is my son whom I love. And, and now they're in the exact opposite place, but it's the same four people. They're his guys. They're the people who he relies on for emotional support. I can tell you five people in my life who I can go to and, whether, and even if I'm the most tired I've ever been, I can sit with them in silence and I will feel better afterwards. And I wonder who are your people? I wonder who are your people who you go to when you really need them? And if you're in this place of confusion or uncertainty or crisis at the moment, are you using those people that God has given you? And on the other hand, are there people who you're a Peter, a James and a John too? Are there people who God has put you in their lives? And sometimes, and I'm the worst at this, sometimes when life gets busy or everything becomes a bit uncertain and confusing and messy, I'm so bad at keeping in contact with the people who really need me. Is there someone who needs you at the moment that maybe you even need to send a text to before you leave church this morning? You need to reach out to. Who are the people in your life and who are the people who you're there for? But also there's a corporate thing as well, like we need each other. Maybe you feel on the edges of church and maybe this morning you need to, before you leave, chat to one of the team and join a group, join a team. 
Or maybe, and this, and this is just me personally, like the single best thing you can do at HTB to feel part of community is to come along to focus. When we started at HTB three years ago, um, we knew about three people, mainly because I was related to two of them. Um, and, and we went to focus. We had the most amazing four days and we literally came back with 100 close friends. Like if you're feeling on the edge, please, please sign up to Focus. Please come and join us. We are all going and we'd love you to come. So first thing that Jesus does is he gathers close friends. Second thing that Jesus does is he prays real prayers. Verse 39, verse 40 and verse verse 39, verse 42, verse 44, he prays the same prayer three times. I'm finding this really, really hard, Father. But if you want me to do this, I will do it. So he's real, he's authentic, he's passionate. We read in some of the parallel passages that he, that he cried. You know, he's, he's, he's raw. He's not trying to pray in a certain way. He's not, he's not religious about it. He's not prescriptive about it. He is honest. He's real. He could even be seen as, you know, being, being angry or coming from a place of doubt. And the fact that he... The fact that he prays again and again and again just shows his humanity because he probably prayed. Maybe God gave him some peace or some hope and then he goes back maybe disappointed by how his disciples have behaved and then he needs to pray again. So we get this model of praying prayers that are both real but also repeated. Pray persistent prayers. And what does it look like for you to pray passionate, real, articulate, authentic prayers to God? Maybe you feel that you need to pray in a in a certain way. You need to say certain things. That's actually all God wants is your authentic, passionate self. If you feel overcome with emotion and anger, he wants that. He doesn't want you to phrase it in a, in a nice way. He wants the real you. One of, one of my, the things that's impacted me the most, um, my wife, Jo, when she, um, when she prays, she finds it helpful to slow her mind down, to write prayers out in a prayer journal. And there are sometimes in our life where it's been hard, where we've been in seasons of confusion or uncertainty or crisis. And she's been really angry. And she's written down prayers that I promise you, you can see the imprint of those prayers like 10, 15 pages through the book. And I love that. I love that that she's been able to do that with God, not just hidden away until things get better. Tim Keller says this, prayer, though it is often draining, even in agony, is in the long term the greatest source of power that is possible. Is there anything, if we're being really honest, is there anything that you need to be really real with God about at the moment? Do you need to get passionate in your prayers? So he gathers friends, he prays real prayers, and then he's quick to forgive. He's quick to forgive. We get these three moments interspersed with his three repeated prayers where he asks the disciples to watch and pray, or he asks his three to watch and pray, and then he comes back and they're asleep. And it's amazing what happens because he gives very clear feedback. He says, I am disappointed. I am upset. This hasn't been great. But then he moves on. He asks them to do the same thing again. He doesn't give up. He doesn't say, oh, we'll just give up then. Just move on, you know. And then the third time, he says, well, you've mucked up twice and I'm, you know, a bit cheesed off, but we're going to go on to the next thing together. I'm not going to go off by myself. And I just love that model of a Jesus who, who, is, who is not afraid to speak authentically and honestly to those around him, but is also super quick to forgive and to restore. 
I know for me that I'm so good at burning those who have chosen and desired to be proximate to me when I'm struggling with stuff. I'm so quick to tell them that they could have done something better or could have, you know, done something in a different way. So the model we get from Jesus is feedback and then forgiveness. He's quick to forgive. So you've got close friends, real prayer, quick to forgive. It's the model that Jesus gives us in these seasons of confusion. And then the 10 verses that we haven't read, what comes next when Jesus gets arrested? We then get given an, we get given an explanation, an example of why we should behave in this way of why we should behave in this way. And what I think it shows us is that when we have character in the confusion, it grows composure in the crisis. Character in confusion results in composure in the crisis. Um, At the end of medical school, I was lucky enough to go and work in Uganda for a a short amount of time. And uh, I met the most remarkable um, British um, GP out there who 20 years earlier had worked as the medical director of this hospital. And it was on the um, uh, Uganda-Rwanda border and there were these huge big mountains. And every few months, um, some rebels from the neighbouring country would come over the mountain and they would loot the town. And they would often leave the hospital compound alone because there were quite a few Westerners there and they didn't, you know, they knew that would just sort of raise tensions. And so they they always left that, but they went around the village doing doing not very nice things. And and every time this would happen, the community in the medical compound, like where they all lived, they would gather together and they would do what Jesus says to do. They would watch and pray. They would hear, you know, the occasional gunshot, the occasional scream, but they would watch and they would pray. They would pray for the people that they knew in the village. And then one time, this fellow, um, he got a phone call and he said, you need to come to the hospital right now. And so he's there with his, you know, with the whole community, but particularly his family and his three kids. And he says bye and walks the sort of 200 metres across the road um, to the hospital. And he goes into the operating theatre and there's this guy lying on the theatre table. Um, And he's very clearly been stabbed in the back, right through his spine. Um, And um, there are 10 armed rebels pointing their guns at him. And they go, the, the sort of head one says, you make him walk right now or we're going to shoot you. And medically, he knew that that was not something that was going to happen, at least in that moment. And so he was just like, okay, this is a, this is a crisis. This is, this is not great. Um, and because he had sown character in the confusion, because in that season beforehand, they'd been watching and praying. He had this huge surge of peace that just overwhelmed him, even though there were 10 people in this tiny operating theatre pointing guns at him, asking him to do a medically ridiculous and impossible thing. And he remembered in the back of his mind, he had this picture of this sign at the front of the hospital, which said, don't bring any guns into the hospital, which I always remember because I thought, we don't have those in England. Um, And he said, I'm not going to do anything for your friend until you get your guns out of my hospital. And when he told me this, he remembered there were like three of his staff behind him like, why have you said that? No. And they stared at him for about 30 seconds. And then they just walked out 
firing their guns in the air. His wife thought he'd been shot because they were, they were just firing their guns in the air as they walked out and just left this guy. And they did everything that they could for him in that, in that moment. But because he had shown character in the confusion, because he had sown with watching and praying in his own garden, when it came to crisis, he was composed. When he came to the crisis, he was composed. And this is what we see in the next 10 verses, and we haven't read them, but I'm going to summarise them for you. So this gang comes to arrest Jesus. They're headed up by Judas and some of the high priests. And Jesus is calm and composed. He's loving towards Judas, who betrays him with a kiss. The disciples are the exact opposite. They escalate. They pull out their swords. One of them chops off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus immediately condemns this violence. And we read in the parallel passage in Luke that he actually supernaturally heals the ear. And so we've got this group who didn't sow with watching and praying in the garden, who react in a certain way. And we've got a Jesus who showed character during the season of confusion and uncertainty with watching and praying, who behave in a completely different way. So whereas Jesus showed de-escalation and anti-violence, the disciples escalated the situation. Where Jesus showed healing the disciples showed violence. Where Jesus showed love, the disciples showed fear. And when Jesus showed calm, patient, controlled endurance, the disciples, as it says in the last verse, deserted and fled. And how do you, if you're really honest, how do you react in a crisis at the moment? When stuff gets real, whether it's at work or at home, a family and an argument breaks out or tensions rise up, or maybe it's something even bigger and more significant than that, when stuff happens, how do you react? Because this is actually so diagnostic to what we, you know, to how we're actually feeling, to how we're doing in our walk with God. If we, if we trend towards escalation and violence and fear and desertion and abandonment, then perhaps we need to put in some more work in the garden. Perhaps we need to do those things of gathering our friends and praying real prayers and showing grace to those people around us. But the calling this morning is clear. It's to de-escalation. It's to healing. It's to love. And it's to endurance. Are those, thing, are those not things that our world needs at the moment? What would it look like if our world leaders and those in charge chose de-escalation? instead of violence, shows healing and love and endurance. But this isn't just a passive thing that we hope other people do. This is a calling, this is an example by Jesus, which is a calling to us for us all to do right now in any season that we're in, whether we're in a season of confusion or uncertainty, whether we're in a profound crisis right now. The calling is for us to behave like this. And church, what would it look like if we did that? What would it look like if we held out this example of Jesus in the, in the places and the spaces where we live and work and do family? But what would it look like to a world which is so often choosing violence and escalation and fear? And I just know for certain that there's no way that we can achieve that calling by ourselves. We need to follow the example of Jesus, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I would love us to stand and we're just going to, we're just going to lean into God and listen, ask him to fill us full of his Holy Spirit.